Disclosure, the information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, any and all information presented in this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making any decision. Hello, everyone. Ben Keedy here again with the Wealth Crypto Podcast. And today I have on Lee Bratcher. He is the founder and president of the Texas Blockchain Council, obviously based in Texas, but basically they are a nonprofit advocacy group for all things crypto, DeFi, etc., etc. So this was a really cool conversation. Lee's got a lot of great perspective, obviously, on the regulatory environment and how things move and shake as far as the political landscape goes for crypto. So hope you enjoy. Thanks. And we're live. Lee, what's up? Hey, Ben. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely, man. I'm glad we could do this. Uh, Shout out to Frank for the uh, referral. So that's always appreciated. But maybe let's just start quick house cleaning stuff. Just a little bit about you, your background. What is the Texas Blockchain Council? And we can just run from there. Sure. Well, I uh, I started the Texas Blockchain Council in 2019. Before that, I was a political science professor researching property rights and made my way to digital property rights, the Bitcoin white paper, and then uh, researching blockchain as a tool for he- people uh, being able to be secure in their property rights, both, both digitally and in the real world. And so um, that's how I got into the space. Uh, we've been researching, did that from an academic perspective. Uh, I started that in 2015, and then the council in 2019, and then I quit my job as a political science professor to do the council full time uh, in late 2020, and and here we go, and we're off to the races. Yeah, yeah, I'll say that's that's. So I've heard lots of sort of foundational stories for crypto since doing the podcast, and I you were the first who's told me that they were researching property rights, and that's ultimately what led them to Bitcoin. So that's kind of cool. It is a rare story. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Um, So maybe just real quick, what does the Texas Blockchain Council do in Texas? And then maybe, you know, if you do play nationally, just kind of lay out a little bit of your mission and how you guys hope to help crypto. Yeah, we're a nonprofit trade association, which means we're like a chamber of commerce. So we do two things primarily. One is we help our member companies with business development. Typically, that's B2B development, making introductions and connections for them and helping them improve their brand awareness. Um, We also do, on the other side of the house, we do lobbying and regulatory work. So we work a lot with the Texas legislature. We work with regulatory agencies within Texas. And we also do some federal work. Uh, I co-chair the U.S. Blockchain Coalition, which is a loose federation of about 40 different state associations. Um, including states like California, Florida, Washington State, uh, Pennsylvania, and and many others. So from that perspective, we work to influence federal policy at the national level. Okay. Okay, cool. So there's literally, I think, a million ways that I ask a question here. But I'm going to try something a little bit new and just give it back to you. And I'm just curious, from your seat right now with everything going on, what... What is it that you find interesting about 
the regulatory space in crypto. Take that however you want, wherever you want. But I'm just curious, like, what are you working on right now? Yeah. Well, the, what's interesting is we're at a juncture in the, the history of the trajectory of digital assets that is unique because public policy is such a big part of the story, right? In most emerging technology areas, uh, public policy doesn't play as big of a role as it does with crypto. Uh, I think you could you could argue that AI will soon have similar public policy challenges. I was going to a little bit. Yeah. It's a little bit different. I mean, yeah. You know, I, I think they're they're similar in that they're very acute and they're they affect the lives of constituents for these elected officials. So, um, you know, AI being more of a sort of a uh, concern about uh, everyone's know, job is gone. <laughs> yeah. Everyone losing <laughs> jobs or um, gosh, what, what is the phrase for general intelligence? Um, CGAI or whatever uh, general artificial, general artificial intelligence, basically okay. like the ability for um, for artificial intelligences to gain human-like properties and and outsmart humans and things of that nature. So I know there's there's a coalition forming to sort of slow the growth of um, general artificial intelligence in that way. But to to get off that tangent, the digital asset space is in a similar, um, in, in a similar, it finds itself in a similar spot with the regulatory environment, especially that in uh, that we see out of the SEC with Gary Gensler being pretty hostile and um, concerns from the White House as well that really threaten the industry in the U.S. Of course, the industry is ne- never going to be slowed down globally. It's just going to thrive in various jurisdictions. And then eventually it'll be like the internet where everybody uses it everywhere. And there's regulatory frameworks in, in various jur- jurisdictions that for the most part, makes sense. Right sure. now, we're just not there yet. And so I think the most interesting thing in crypto is um, when, when are we going to achieve some sort of regulatory um, clarity or or leveling in the US that allows for capital, for innovators, uh, entrepreneurs, and investors to feel comfortable building products and offering products to US um non-accredited investors, right? Sure. Uh, and and I'm not saying that we need to go back to the ICO days, but what I'm saying is we need a framework for security tokens, commodity tokens. Uh, we need we need a FIT Act, which is the Market Structure Act that Chair Patrick McHenry has proposed out of the Financial Services Committee in Congress. That is working its way through the House, will likely not pass the Senate, so we have a couple more years of ambiguity on that front, and that's where the states can come in to help provide a little bit more regulatory clarity for builders. Sure. So you kind of touched on the national level. How, how can you juxtapose that against what specifically is happening in Texas? And maybe you know, it would it would appear Texas is one of the places to be. It seems fairly open towards crypto as a whole. How does that kind of compare with? The national landscape, whether you're, you know, a hodler or a builder or, you know, maybe a client at some point, like how, how does Texas think about this differently than the national conversation? Yeah. 
We've uh, we've passed several pieces of digital asset legislation here in Texas, two in the 87th session from 2021, and two again in this session that ended just a few months ago. And so what, what we see is that the ability for Texas elected officials to pass meaningful legislation, which we have not seen any digital asset legislation pass the U.S. Um, Congress. So we've got uh, a couple of bills. One of them established a blockchain working group. That was House Bill 1576. Uh, we have from this session, House Bill 1666, which uh, established a uh, requirement for all digital asset service providers to provide proof of reserve attestations to the Texas Department of Banking, right? And Makes so sense. <laughs> it's not a real-time proof of reserves. It's a quarterly uh, attestation and then mm-hmm. an annual um an annual attestation by a third party. So um, not perfect, but it is another tool in the assurance toolbox. We need typical regular audits that are typical of companies, both public and uh, private. Of course, the public company audits are a little bit more severe, Mm -hmm. uh, but but we need to certainly have those still, um, but we need to add some blockchain assurances that are uh, cryptographically provable. And we need to to work towards real-time Proof of reserves attestations because that is um, certainly the the most secure attestation for assurances of liabilities and reserves that that, that there is out there is a real time proof of reserves audit. Uh, certainly, people can can game the system um, in other instances, but it's pretty tough to to game a real time proof of reserves audit. In fact, impossible to gain a real time proof of reserves audit. audit um, just because you're you're not able to do any sort of flash loans to get assets on your balance sheet for for the audit, it is yeah. it is real time. So it, that becomes immediately unsustainable. Um, so yeah, we're we're excited about what we've done in Texas. Other states are progressing the policy environment. What we can't affect at the state level is two things: we can't affect we can't affect tax law, and we can't affect securities law. So those are two things that the federal government has to figure out. A lot of this other stuff, like for example, House Bill 4474 from Texas changed business law, which is the Uniform Commercial Code. That's set at the state level. So we've got a Uniform Commercial Code in Texas that recognizes virtual currencies is how they put it in the state law. Okay. So yeah, that that's beneficial and positive. And I think is about half the battle is what we can do at the states. The other half, unfortunately requires Congress and requires some IRS guidance. Uh, of course, we're getting more IRS clarity as we speak. Um, October 30th, I believe, is the due date for uh, IRS guidance on, uh, or, or at least feedback uh, from the general public about IRS proposed rulemaking uh, around definitions and, and different tax uh, implications. And then on the securities issue, uh, we we need a market structure bill so that the SEC doesn't just ru- run roughshod. Now, yeah. don't get me wrong; I think a lot of those tokens were securities, but sure. uh, it's just certainly it's just not the right way to go about regulating them by by allowing them to do things and then arbitrarily calling them in or sending them Wells notices. It's just uh, it, it, it hampers innovation and. You know, I think we should have a spectrum of tokens that they can pass from securities to commodities. And of course, I believe that Bitcoin and Ethereum are already commodities, and the SEC has pretty much admitted that. Um, 
They certainly have for Bitcoin. They're a little bit, at one time they admitted it for Ethereum and now they've backtracked a little bit, but um, I I think there's no argument there. Uh, It's really a lot of these other projects, are they securities or not? And and if they're securities, fine, let's just get a national securities exchange that's willing to deal in some of these digital assets uh, that that has the right licenses. And um, I, I think that appropriate regulatory frameworks will come and big brands will drive adoption and we'll go from there. Do you generally think that the current landscape of crypto and then in tandem with TradFi businesses like our, you know, wirehouse banks, like are they ready to like in a best case scenario, say you did get the regulatory framework cleared up and everything's great as of tomorrow, or like, do you think the landscape is ready to kind of handle sort of the next wave of crypto? Or do you feel like from a regulatory standpoint, we're still missing certain key pieces to run it well? You know, I think it it reminds me of the Gartner hype cycle, right? The hype cycle for Gartner, they do this for all emerging technologies. There is the uh, euphoric peak, and then there's the trough of disillusionment, sure. and then there's the plane of productivity. I think we're in the plane of productivity right now, which yeah. means that big institutions are, they have digital assets divisions, they're working in the background, they're just waiting for two things, right? They're waiting for um, regulatory clarity, which people hear that phrase all the time. It's, it's certainly an overused phrase. Uh, I think they're they're waiting for a sufficient uh, amount of clarity combined with a lessening in the brand risk. So we need time to pass from FTX, basically, and we need the brand risk to go down sufficiently and the regulatory clarity to be there at a sufficient level to which the both of those combined are net uh, neutral or net smaller than the uh, the gains that they will make uh, from you know onboarding the next generation of digital asset users, whether that is for a lot of these institutions, that's actually going to be boomers, right? Because the people in uh, you know the twenty to forty age bracket are pretty well you know understand this. Um, people from the forty to say sixty five age bracket, that's probably where most of the wealth lies in the U.S. Oh, and maybe for sure. 40, yeah. 40 to 70. Um, and those are the folks that had the, the hardest time with this because they're not digital native. You know, I'm I'm kind of right in between at 36. Like I yeah. feel like I was digital native, but I also grew up and we didn't have internet in my house <laughs> when I was a kid, yeah. right? Like, yeah. or nobody did, right? Until I was in middle school or something. You know, there, there's, uh, there's certainly a long road to uh, to achieving all that stuff. Yeah, it's funny that you, so I'm 33, about to be 34 here in January. And I was talking about this recently with someone in my network. I think it was most likely my wife. <laughs> we were just talking about um, in relation to our five-month-old daughter, like she is going to grow up, you know, she's already like playing around with mom's iWatch and like is super absorbed in screens. Whereas when we were kids, we really did not have that like at all. We were running around outside and you know riding our bikes everywhere and just playing in the dirt and just like that like caricature that like older boomers tell of childhood i generally feel like we were the last generation of that before the iphone hit like i remember 
my friend Sean had the first iPhone at our school. And that was, I think, when I was a sophomore. Um, but yeah, this next wave of digital, I generally think, needs to be easier for people. You know, particularly if you're talking about, you know, people 40 plus who are not digital natives. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. A lot yeah. of work on the UI, UX uh, components of wallets and things like that. I mean, we just had a good call with uh, Block, which is formerly yep. Square, you know, Jack Dorsey's company, and they are doing a ton of work on open source wallets and hardware wallets, even that are intuitive for non web three people uh so they they do a great job and i cannot recommend them highly enough their wallet is called bitkey uh and i think it's coming out in q4 of this year okay interesting what uh i guess just to kind of pull on that thread how did you and block get connected what were they curious about uh texas blockchain council for yeah, they're a member of our association. So we work with okay. them on anything from Bitcoin mining to self-custody to, you know, the, this, obviously this hardware wallet is a big piece of their self-custody work. The, the hardware wallet is actually a multi-sig wallet. And one of the keys is with Block. One of yeah. the keys is on your hardware device. And one of the keys is on your phone. So um, it's not one of those multi-sigs where, you know, you have seed phrases that back up your hardware wallet. It's like a sort of self-contained backup mechanism where you have you know, a, a, a wallet on your phone that stores a key. You have a key stored on the hardware device that is fingerprint protected. Yeah. And then, then Block has a, a, a key that, of course, Block can't move the funds because they only have one of the three keys. You have to have yeah. two or three to move. The funds. So you have full control of its full self-custody solution. Like you yeah, are yeah. in ownership of your assets. Yeah. But the beauty of it is if you lose your phone and therefore your key that was stored on that phone, right? Sure. Because a lot of times, you know, these phones, yeah, they don't uh the the nature the nature of them, you can't just bring that back when you restore your iPhone on your new iPhone, right? The key, oh, sure. yeah. the key to the wallet doesn't stay. That's actually on the device itself. It doesn't <laughs> stay. It's not with Apple. Yeah. So um, it's not backed up on iCloud or anything. So anyways, um, you lose your phone and you get a new phone, you can back it up with the block key plus your hardware wallet key. So yeah. it's, a great, it's a great solution. Interesting. What a... Front, going circling back to kind of the regulatory side and self custody, do you do you worry at all just about the self custody thing as it relates to crypto assets? Like I've kind of heard, kind of separate but uh, similar is I've heard rumblings about regulating decentralized software applications. Right? Like, do you, is there in your mind currently a regulatory risk of maybe a worst case scenario where regulation does not turn out favorable to the industry. I certainly think that that's a possibility that we don't get for, uh, favorable regulation. I, I don't think though that they can kill self custody. Yeah. I think, I think they're going to go after DeFi pretty hard. Yeah. Uh, because they want to have to hold res parties responsible so that there can, you know, they're mostly concerned about KYC and AML, anti-money laundering. Yeah. Uh, but with self-custody, that's really less of a concern. It's more of, it's also self-custody is more in line with constitutional rights. 
So I, I really don't see any chance that they're going to outlaw, you know, self-custody, right? Because, you know, that would be like akin to outlawing holding cash or gold at your house, which they've done that with they gold. Did, <laughs> they did do that at yeah. one point. Uh, yeah. I believe that was uh, around World War II. Was that, uh, that was, uh, oh goodness, uh, which president was that? Uh, it'll come uh, to me later. Gosh, he, he did outlaw the custody of gold, and I see his face, and I can't remember his name. Um, oh, it, I guess it was Roosevelt. Um, it was Ro- it was Roosevelt. It was FDR. Yeah, through through executive order in 1933. Yep, yep. Um, I was wanting to say JFK. I was like, no, it was the president <laughs> in the 30s and 40s. It wasn't JFK. It was the other yeah, yeah. three letter acronym is FDR. Yeah, so they did outlaw gold. So we're crazier things have happened um but i really don't think that i think it would be a similar shocking thing to outlaw self-custody like it was quite shocking and of course that was repealed later that you can't own gold in your home yeah Uh, they did that sort of extreme circumstances world war ii etc or it was the great depression actually at that point but eventually then you're in world war ii yeah yeah um in in like 41 but uh yeah, I, I I don't see self custody becoming on the chopping block now. DeFi, there's that's an open question. If certainly Tumblr's, sure. like, are you familiar with Tumblr's the uh, the mixers that? Oh sure, uh, yeah, Tornado Cash, Tornado yeah. Cash, and all that. Yeah. Uh, I actually side, I think, with the elected officials on that one. You know, I, I think some twenty percent of all funds that went through Tornado Cash were estimated to be illicit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm an advocate for privacy, just like the next guy, but I do see, I am cognizant of the national security issues with something like tornado cash, because it's used by like North Korea and yeah. our, our in adversaries. Sure. And I'm a fan of DeFi. And I think that, you know, we can't kill DeFi just for AML reasons, Yeah, but I, I would not, I would not be opposed to, you know, uh, you know, I certainly would not support the arresting of the the person that developed Tornado Cash, which is what's happened. Sure. I think yeah, yeah. That individual was arrested in in Amsterdam, I think. Um, that's that's not the right policy move. But I would be understanding if elected officials have broad concerns about Tornado Cash. Sure, sure. I guess that leads to a larger question of like, how do you, if DeFi in some capacity is here to stay? How, I like where do you, do you draw the line? Yeah, like how do you how do you balance both, right? So how do you balance, you know, privacy but also you know, national security interests? Like how, is there a way to kind of at least approach the best of both worlds? You know, from my perspective there's always a compromise to be made. I think there's people out there that are far more black and white that would say, yeah. you know, privacy is everything and sovereignty is everything. Uh, and I'm, I'm a fan of individual liberty and sovereignty. Absolutely. Sure. But we've all given up some sovereignty to live even in the United States. Yeah. Uh, We certainly have given up less liberty and sovereignty than in autocratic nations. Sure. But, but we do give up some of our liberty and it's, it's on a spectrum, right? It's on a spectrum. And, you know, I think we want that spectrum to lean towards liberty and sovereignty. Certainly. But we will never have complete individual sovereignty uh, over a hundred percent of our lives. It's just yeah. that's an anathema, and that's a that's a 
a world of chaos. Um, so here's so, a question for you. So I've been thinking about, like, I kind of fall more on the libertarian side of things, more control in my own hands. I generally would prefer, but I understand the need for like police and fire departments and stuff like that. Right. Right. Standing, um, standing armies to defend the yeah, country. Sure. Like I, I get it. I think where I try to noodle through this. And I think a lot of the frustration people have is in like the responsiveness of government to a degree. So like if you're Tim cook, right. You can, move mountains no problem right you can talk to people people want to talk to you things are okay but like if you're just you know a normal citizen paying your taxes and you've got some dispute and you can't figure it out like um i think that's where a lot of the frustration is so like i've i haven't seen a lot of this yet but where does i mean where does crypto make government more efficient like do you hear any of these conversations where you know you can maximize utility to government the citizen, um, other citizens, right? But it kind of seems like there's a natural kind of fit there. Like, I don't know why we haven't talked much about voting on blockchains. It seems like that would alleviate everyone's concern about free and fair elections. Um, But I guess I'm just curious if you hear any of these rumblings since you work the political side so much. Well, I think what decentralization in general does is it keeps the government honest and the government is too large a part of the economy it's too large a part of people's lives so uh, if i were you know i'm somewhat of a libertarian centrist uh right so i'm not like a i'm not like a von mises austrian ultra libertarian anarcho-capitalist whatever i'm amy a more of a centrist libertarian and um I, I think that we are at a point in our nation's history where we've gone way too far and government uh, makes up too large of a, a share of the total workforce, too large of a share of, uh, you know, as an individual's life. And certainly the services that we're getting for the taxes that we're paying are quite um, out of balance. Mm-hmm. Um, with that said, you know, there there's no breaking institutions without doing a lot of damage you have to change institutions slowly because yeah. if you try to change institutions fast they break yeah and then and then you get conflict and war and chaos sure uh so what i think happens here and what i think the best case scenario is uh, would be digital assets creating some competition in the marketplace uh creating some competition for shared services um, yeah Things that are traditionally a monopoly of the state, like identity, money, sure. yeah, um, you know, yeah, 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 a lot of services that are are a monopoly of the state. That um, if there's some competition there, maybe the state starts performing those services better because the the decentralized world is actually performing it quite efficiently. And so, I think that's good. I think that either leads to decentralization and you know self-sovereignty taking on a bigger role like i said earlier not will never be a hundred percent you will never live somewhere on earth where you don't live in a country right you'll always be living in a country but uh i think a little competition will spur the government for to more efficiency yeah i mean are these conversations they like for example like texas is obviously a little bit more conservative than california but do you have 
these conversations in the legislature in Texas? Like, do you hear people kind of, you know, give voice to these ideas or is this more, you know, crypto as an industry kind of talking amongst itself? No, I think we we do talk about this with elected officials. It's just for, how yeah. you frame it for each person, right? So if I'm sure. talking to one of my friends who's a, a state representative or a state senator uh, about this industry, and I know that they're very concerned about the U.S. dollar remaining the world reserve currency, sure. I'll talk about it from that perspective. And I'll talk yeah. about how uh, Bitcoin and stable coins can actually prolong the dollar as the world reserve currency. Stable coins are the 15th largest buyer of U.S. treasuries if it were a country. Yeah, stable coins buy more U.S. treasuries than Saudi Arabia. So when you talk about it in that perspective, to somebody who's very concerned about the dollar as a world reserve currency, they get it. Now, when you sure. talk to a libertarian, yeah. which I've got friends in elected office who are kind of you know they're Republican libertarians or Democratic libertarians. There's probably more Republican libertarians in Texas than than anything. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, you talk about it from this perspective about competition creating more efficient government services, about the private sector and decentralization, providing ways to defeat collective action problems. Before mm-hmm. before such time, the government was the only entity that could sufficiently supplant, or not supplant, could sufficiently solve collective, act, collective action problems as it relates to identity or money or, or sure. anything like that. Yeah. And now we're bringing in um, decentralization and digital ledgers and and what was started off with with the bitcoin white paper there is now an alternative and governments will be forced to respond and, sure. and become more efficient yeah. yeah yeah you brought you like my mind latched onto something you said about uh exporting the US dollar and i was listening to a bankless podcast the other day about how stable coins at least from the crypto view should be like a natural alignment of say federal reserve policy, maintaining the dollars global reserve status. And this guy was specifically from Argentina and everyone knows Argentina has struggled with inflation for a long time. And I guess he has now taught his mom how to use, you know, dollar backed stable coins to basically preserve her purchasing power in Argentina to, you know, live her life. Um, yeah. But in terms of, you know, exporting the dollar globally, stablecoins could be a much more efficient way to do that than, you know, trying to get cash or maybe buying treasuries or something like that. So exactly. We're shooting ourselves in the foot. I mean, if the US government understood the potential of stablecoins, first of all, you got to scrap a CBDC because, you know, that's a privacy nightmare. It's kind uh, of totalitarian very, from the libertarian. totalitarian <laughs> dystopian. Yeah. Uh, and then you got to go with privately issued stable coins that mm-hmm. are going to be overwhelmingly dollar backed. 99% of stable coins are backed by US dollars. Um, and you're going to see a run. It's going to be, it's going to strengthen the, the, the dollar globally. And it's going to dollarize a bunch of economies that are currently not dollarized. And yeah. last time I checked, dollarized economies do even more to preserve the dollars of world reserve currency than, um, you know, the uh, the euro, uh, the petrodollar even. Like, yeah, of course, the petrodollar is stronger because there's only like five or six dollarized economies. But imagine if there was 30, yeah. that would be a more powerful force in prolonging the dollar as a world reserve currency than the petrodollar. And the petrodollar is falling apart. Uh, China is pricing uh, is is requiring uh, a lot of its oil imports to be priced in yuan, 
yeah. or euros. Uh, so they're, they're, the, the BRICS nations are even talking about a, uh, a BRICS yeah. currency that would, you know, be, uh, be how, um, oil, oil is settled in their jurisdiction. So I think we're foolish to not consider this uh, a huge opportunity for the U.S. And it's unfortunately being squandered. I think I think we'll still win because sure. now this this had happened 20 years from now when the dollar was teetering and you know the U.S. couldn't borrow in dollars anymore. We were borrowing in like some other nation's currency. Sure. Um, then we wouldn't have this opportunity. But this revolution is happening now and the dollar is the world reserve currency and we yeah. we will stand to benefit from it. It could keep the dollar as a world currency, reserve currency for say three or four more decades. Yeah. What um so I, I guess maybe a couple of questions. Like how how involved are you in the actual policy discussion? Like obviously in Texas, it sounds like you're fairly involved. Nationally you help coordinate these state blockchain councils right um what like when when you are trying to like talk big picture stuff to legislators i i realize that you've got to tailor it to whatever their values are whatever they care about all that sort of stuff but are there a couple of big themes that you lead with in regards to the industry as a whole um whether it's like access to financial services or you know maintaining dollar uh reserve currency status or whatever it may be like are there common sort of things that you talk to with people yeah i mean like you said we tailor it but there are several themes that we hit on of course job creation is is top of that oh, list there you go job creation and tax revenue really works at the local level um that works for state representatives state senators county judges uh etc at the national level we find um the innovation discussion and keeping innovation in the U.S. is powerful sure. across the aisle with Democrats and Republicans. Yeah, uh, of course, the dollar is a powerful. You know, the stablecoin discussion is powerful, um, and, and yeah, we are quite involved at the state, at the state level. So, certainly in Texas, you're not going to get any digital asset policy that we haven't had our hands on, right? Like sure. we're, we're intimately involved. Um, and we incubate a lot of those policy ideas and help to research them and craft them and work with staffers and elected officials on their policy priorities. Um, and then at the national level, we are, I guess, less directly involved and I would say more tangentially involved. So we do certainly work with our partners at the federal level, um, whether that's on the industry side, like Coinbase or or A16Z or some of these other firms. Yeah, uh, or it's at the trade association side, like the Digital Chamber of Commerce or the Blockchain Association. Um, we work through those entities and uh, try to help influence positive outcomes there. Typically, mm -hmm. what that looks like is they say, "Hey, you know, we had a call today where a representative from Coinbase was ta talking to me about the staying with crypto event they have tomorrow in DC. We're sending a member of our team to join sure. with them in DC and." Um, you know, they were asking for some support with Texas elected officials uh, who are on the relevant committees. And sure. then we can, therefore, we have like grassroots, no understanding of their districts and no people in their yeah. district. And, you know, that's that's how the federal and the state stuff usually works together. There's 38 Texas elected, Texas con uh, 
Congress Congress people. Sure. And I think uh, California has like 50. Is that is that right? You know, I have not had this conversation with California. I know as a lifelong, except for four years in Colorado, as a lifelong California resident, I know remarkably little about how the state works. <laughs> you, you guys have lost <laughs> some representation as a as a share. Like every time the census goes out, you know, I think California is down. Uh, I think our producer will probably be able to look it up and pop it up on the screen for us. Yeah. But uh, I think you might still be, maybe you've dropped below 50 after the last census, but you you definitely okay. have the most, the most number of elected officials in D.C., uh, Texas is obviously the second most and everybody's yeah. got the same number of senators, which is a quirk of our nation's yeah. history. But, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, it's, uh, it's a fascinating, it's, it's fascinating how it all works. Do this is going to be an impossible question to answer, but, um, do you have any idea? Cause oh, like 52, 52 representatives, okay. by the way, in California, our, all right. our producer. Um, yeah. I need, I need to do. I should know a lot more about my state because I do follow politics a decent amount and I know nothing about what's going on in California. Um, but I was going to ask you, you know, the values argument around, you know, legislation for crypto and all this stuff makes, I, I mean, it, I, I do sales for a living. That's how you should approach people to talk to them about things. But yeah, what happened with it getting so politicized? Like, is it just because that's the state of America and this is just another issue? So people picked a side or like in your experience, was there a point where things kind of fell apart? Was it SBF, for example? Like what, how did, how did we get in like the crosshairs, you know? Yeah. Uh, so you're right. It is unfortunate and it is politicized and there are two in my mind, two watershed moments that caused that. One was Elizabeth Warren's crusade, yeah. the anti-crypto army, as she called it. Yeah. Uh, that has been problematic. Sure. And really politicized things because then you have people like Senator Cruz from the great state of Texas, who is a champion for the industry and and been awesome for us and awesome for the industry. Uh, when he is saying one thing and Senator Warren is saying another thing, a lot of these yeah. local elected officials, they just take just, signals from them. Yeah. And yeah, they're just taking signals. And so Democratic local elected officials are like, oh, Elizabeth Warren is telling me that I should hate crypto. I therefore hate crypto. Sure. Uh, and then yeah. Republicans are like, oh, digital assets, innovative, business friendly. We're, sure. we're seeing we're seeing party leaders talk about it. We're going to be for it. Uh, the other thing was SBF. And, yeah, yeah. and that was painful because he had donated to a bunch of Democratic elected officials, as you know. Yeah. He gave a million dollars to uh, Beto, who ran against Governor Abbott here in Texas. Yeah, ended up working out in our favor though, because then Governor Abbott was able to tweet, "Hey, sure, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not the problem's not with crypto. The problem is because this FB, SBF guy is just going around giving millions of dollars to knucklehead politicians. Yeah." Um, and and not all the politicians that SBF gave to were knuckleheads. They they had no idea that he was involved in this kind of fraud. And I'm sure they wouldn't have accepted the money if they knew. Uh, but that was painful, right? That sure. really, there was a lot of embarrassment from several Democrats um, who were caught off guard and, you know, through no faults of their own, right? Yeah. But, but they were embarrassed that SBF was a Democratic donor and... Um, that was just unfortunate. If he had been a Republican donor, there would have been embarrassment on the Republican side. So, yeah, you know, no, nobody could have known, and I, I don't think anybody did know. I just think he, um, it happened to fall that way. And those two things, 
drove the wedge in the same direction. Yeah. You know, and so we're now stuck with, you know, probably 10% of Democrats in Congress being solidly supportive of crypto, uh, maybe 50% being neutral, and then the remaining 40% being opposed. That's not a good ratio. No. Could could you straw man that side of the argument? Like, can you... For why Democrats should support crypto? Uh, no, why they're currently, you know... Uh, opposed, I guess. Like, does does it make sense in some way? Like, maybe from the consumer protection side, or you know, just general regulatory environment. Like, does it? I, yeah, I think there's two there's two ways to think about it. One is depending on how progressive a Democrat is, they are very supportive of centralized control, uh, whether that's through banks or the government. Sure. That is a pretty easy, like, okay. Yeah. But then you have Democrats like Richie Torres and many others who have got are very supportive of crypto and um are not, you know, advocates of control. They're actually, you know, just Democrats who believe in in uh in freedom and liberty, just like everyone um, else. A, yeah. a lot of other elected yeah. officials. So it there is that piece. There's the control piece. Uh, certainly, big banks are big donors to Democratic elected officials, and so their donor sure. class, yeah, um, may initially have been opposed. Although I think big banks are warming up to digital assets. Well, they're um, they're starting to see a path forward. Is what they're, they're see <laughs> they see a path forward <laughs> as they should, um, and that's okay. I mean, yeah, we we don't want these big institutions to be enemies of the industry. We don't want them to co opt it either. So that's sort of a fine line. Uh, but I think we certainly need their involvement. Um, yeah. And certainly, I don't think it's going to be possible for them to co-opt it, uh, except for the case of like a central bank digital currency, in which case yeah. you know, we have a problem, right? Yeah. The other piece, besides the centralization piece, is the consumer protection angle. Yeah. Um, and because there were so many rug pools that yeah. targeted low-income communities, that is not a good look for digital assets. And it's it's uh, a, certainly a valid reason for people on the left and the right, Democrats and Republicans, to uh, be cautious about supporting the industry. Uh, now, certainly, what we would say is the value, the potential, and uh, what this industry will do and is doing is far more impactful and has a greater impact, uh, positive impact on human flourishing than any of the negative aspects, but depends on, you know, your perspective. And maybe if you're a democratic lawmaker who only hears the, the horror stories, that's not their point of view. Uh, and so their point of view is going to be a little bit different. And yeah. I think at that point, we just have a lot of work to do to provide them some data to provide them uh, just different, different narratives and different um, examples of the things to the contrary. And again, the further we get away from SBF, the easier that will be. Sure. Um, so I'm I'm optimistic about the future as as it relates to partisanship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there. I mean, your answer was great. There's a ton of things that kind of caught my attention there. One thing you said that I think. The DGENs struggle with a little bit is that TradFi is coming. They're, you know, they're set up like they're just waiting. Yeah. Um, 
And, you know, like from a capture standpoint, kind of like you'd mentioned too, like that can be good and bad, you know, like um, TradFi businesses bring a lot of industry know-how in a highly regulated environment to make air quote, like safe products for consumers. Um, But, you know, I've talked to a number of people and one thing that I hadn't fully considered is, you know, if you do get a Bitcoin ETF, and, you know, like 10 global financial services companies own 90% of the underlying Bitcoin. Like, is that a good thing? Like, it might be positive price action, but um, I don't know. Just it, there, there's, I think, like you said, too, there's like a lot of compromise. Like, what are we willing to kind of, you know, figure out and be okay with? <laughs> yeah. And the beauty of it, too, is we can't really control it. So we can. I think we'll just um, observe and, you know, we can control it at the margins, right? Like we can sure. make an impact collectively. Certainly we can make an impact. Um, but I think we we impact the traje- trajectory of the water. We don't change the fact that the water is flowing down the stream. Sure. So I think if we can impact the direction of of that change by 10, 15 degrees towards you know, that can be towards, meaningful over a long enough time frame. Yeah, exactly. Towards yeah. decentralization and towards privacy and uh, towards a responsible integration of TradFi, then you know where, where TradFi doesn't capture you know the market in an unhealthy way. Yeah. Hey, we're all for it. I mean, there's a lot of great people that work in TradFi that uh, you know understand, as you said, they understand how to maneuver in highly regulated markets they're going to bring a lot of expertise and uh it's it's absolutely a, a benefit assuming that it is you know responsibly integrated yeah and i think that kind of goes back to just being the the responsive part of things too like i i would like to see more of crypto kind of work on that angle how to make these big unwieldy institutions that we all know and love more responsive to people who just need say an answer on their taxes you know yeah yeah i I think i think the uh the increased competition will certainly spur that out of the government sure well we'll see (laughs) we're 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 here for the ride um let's see we got like 10 minutes to wrap up let's uh kind of pivot outside of the regulatory thing a little bit like uh what is interesting to you right now like you're deep in the industry. What has captured your attention that's either, you know, an existing thing that's been going for a while or maybe something new? Well, of course, the Bitcoin ETFs are, are we're following that like a hawk. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think the the IRS guidelines, you know, we're, we're following that as well. Um, I'm excited about registered investment advisors and capital allocators and institutions, pension funds, et cetera. Um, really taking um a serious look at the space yeah um, we we have a uh, summit coming up the north american blockchain summit in dfw and we'll have a um, industry track for registered investment advisors we'll have one for bankers we'll have one for lawyers we'll have one for accountants so i'm excited about these mainstream industry people who maybe only five percent of their business is digital assets and they haven't really they're not coming at this as like orange pilled you know, sure. down the rabbit hole people, yeah. they're coming at this as just as business people. 
And um, we have the opportunity to engage them and uh, educate them. That's I'm excited about that opportunity. Uh, Of course, that's November 15th through 17th um, that we're hosting that in the North North American Blockchain Summit. And, you know, that is really where the next frontier is, is, is working with people that are not excited about this. They're just like, hey, this is coming and I need to learn it. And I maybe sure. I'm not excited about it, but I need to learn it for my for my business. I'm yeah. an accountant, I'm a lawyer, I'm a banker, whatever. Um, and you know, it takes a little bit longer to educate people that aren't excited, but yeah, maybe they get excited. Or but maybe maybe it's like block and being able just to process payments in a cheaper way as a small business owner. And you're like, hey, I prefer not to pay two percent to somebody if I could get that down to one or 50 basis points or 25 or whatever like i'll go learn about that yeah you know um that's interesting as far as a conference goes i think that's pretty cool about the specific industry tracks for people because i've been to a lot of conferences over the years and they can be a little overwhelming and if you don't kind of know where to look you can miss a lot yeah 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 you you want to provide a space that they feel comfortable that their colleagues are there like they see a fellow banker or a fellow lawyer that they know from across town or or maybe from their their home state or wherever so that's, yeah that's that's the environment that we hope to provide yeah and i know you're i mean i assume rick edelman and digital assets council will be there right yeah he will so he uh, rick edelman and and dac fp are running the registered investment advisor portion of the event for us sure uh, they're so they're one of our partners and uh, we're looking forward to working with them on that. They, they they do great content. Yeah, yeah. Rick's been on the podcast. He's been super helpful, um, kind of pointing me in the right direction as far as guests go. But he has got a fantastic reputation as far as uh, wealth management goes. Um, yeah. Do you do you have similar people who are doing sort of that industry specific? Um, I guess just education and awareness for say lawyers or accountants or like, do those things exist across the board? Yeah. Yeah. We've got some great people, uh, people that lead digital asset practices at different law firms or accounting firms. Um, some people, some university professors that are former, you know, in industry bankers, uh, stable coin experts. Uh, the guy, his name's Austin Campbell. He's a university of Columbia professor, but he was at Paxos for many years with their stable coin offerings. Uh, he's coming down. We've got Nitin Guar from State Street, which you know your yep. listeners will know State Street. Um, of course, Caitlin Long will be there from Custodia. One of the she's she's obviously a darling of the industry. Uh For sure. everybody everybody's a fan of Caitlin. Or yeah. maybe not everybody, but most people are. Sure. <laughs> so um nice. Well I mean sounds like you're doing a lot for sure. And somebody's got to keep it going. So I'm glad to know that you're out there fighting the good fight. We're trying. Yeah. One day at a time. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, let's see. Any other quick things you want to finish with here? Uh, where can people find you? Any other closing thoughts? Or Yeah, people can find me on Twitter at Lee underscore Bratcher. And uh, the summit website is NorthAmericanBlockchainSummit.org. Um, we would love to have people come out and join us for that and uh yeah i think um this this takes takes all of us so it's it's a team effort and we couldn't do what we do without our member companies and our and our team so just grateful for um 
the team mentality that we have in the digital asset ecosystem. Yeah, yeah, we are all for sure mightier as one. <laughs> um, but thanks for coming on, Lee. Really appreciate it. Welcome back literally anytime. So thanks, Ben. Yeah.